Jonah chapter number three is where we're at this morning, and we're continuing in our our walk, our exposition through this minor prophet of the Old Testament. When we've been taking our time going through this verse by verse, little by little each week, going through this little book, and we've seen over and over and over again that there is way, way, way more to this little book than just a man who was swallowed by a great big whale. This is week seven in our series in Jonah, and Lord willing, we'll have two weeks here in chapter number three, this week and next week, and then two weeks in chapter four, and that will give us a total of 10 sermons in the book of Jonah. I've enjoyed my preparation time and getting ready to preach these messages. It's very convicting. This little book is very convicting. As I said it last week, this book forces us to get honest with ourselves and to get honest with the Lord about how we obey and how we disobey the revealed will of God. That has been one of the many themes that we've seen as we've gone through this book is obedience to the will of God. Jonah was God's hand-picked prophet. He was the man for the minute. And according to 2 Kings 14, Jonah was a true proven prophet, meaning that God had given him things to go tell people, given him things to prophesy, and those things had in fact come true. That was the measuring stick to discern who was a genuine prophet of God. Deuteronomy chapter 18 tells us uh, how to discern a genuine prophet of the Lord. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, When uh, a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that thing is, uh, that, thing, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The Lord did not give that person that message. That Lord did not tell that person to go say that thing. Well, what is supposed to happen to that? If you back up two verses in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord tells us, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded to him, or who speaks in the name of the other gods, that prophet shall die. We need to take the words of God very seriously. If you say that you're speaking for God, you, it better be the real deal. It better be the real deal. It better be the genuine article because God takes that very seriously. He takes that gravely seriously. That's why we're told in the New Testament, it's not wise for all of you to be teachers. That doesn't mean you should run from that. But you need to make sure that what you're telling people is the real thing, is the real true word of God. Now, we can make mistakes. I can say, well, uh, 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 Jonah had two of every animal on the ark. Did I make a mistake? Yes, Noah had to. Is, is, is that one that's going to have the possibility of leading someone to straighten no. up? But if I get up here and, and I say that it is uh, faith in Jesus Christ plus anything else equals eternal salvation, that's wrong. That is so wrong. God takes that seriously. And now if someone comes to comes up to you or I and says, you know, I've been reading my Bible and I was in this particular passage and it really stood out to me because of what you were going through. And I thought it might bless you. I thought you might find it useful. I'll go along with that all day long. And I believe that the Lord will lay people upon our hearts for us to pray for. And sometimes even more than that, sometimes pick up the phone and call them or go over to their house because God may be. Uh, That person may be praying for something, praying for God to work something in their life 
And we have the capability to do that and we're going to be that conduit. We're going to be that person. We're going to be that hand that God uses to bring about blessing in that person's life. I believe that with all my heart. What I don't believe is when someone says, hey, I've got a prophecy of the Lord. Hey, the Lord told me this. The Lord, the, the Lord showed me this and there's really no scripture to back it up. I was looking at this video the other night. I can't remember if I was just, I was bored and looking at YouTube or whatever. And I clicked on this video and the title of it was something to the effect of what God showed me in a dream. I'm a skeptical at heart and I'm cynical at heart too. And I'm like, uh, yeah, here, let's, let, let's just, let, let's just see what it says just for a, a few minutes. And the whole premise of the video was the, 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 the guy said that the Lord had given him a vision of when Christ is to return. We know that's false. The Bible tells us no man knoweth the day nor the hour when the Lord Jesus will return. And then I kept on listening a little while longer and then, of course, buy my book. That's always, that's always there. Imagine that. But in the day in which we live, people can get away with that stuff for now. People can get away with that stuff for now. They will not get away with that if they die without repenting of that. In Jonah's day, that stuff would not fly. If a person predicted something in the name of the God of Scripture, it had better come true. If not, they were given that they would receive the death penalty. So Jonah was the real deal. He was God's proven prophet, and he was commanded by God to go to Nineveh, declare the message of impending judgment apart from repentance. Jonah doesn't just say, you know, that really just conflicts with my schedule. I, you know, could you, you know, maybe look at doing it another time? Could you call another prophet? No, Jonah gets up, boom, he's gone. He leaves. He disobeys. He's on the run from God in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Jonah is arrested and held captive until he finally repents in the belly of that whale. And then he finally does repent, and that's where we left him last week. We left him uh, right after that repentance, and the Lord commands that whale to turn Jonah loose, and the whale regurgitated Jonah onto the dry land. That's where we left Jonah last week, and that's where we're going to pick him up. He's on the beach. He looks bad, and he smells worse. So look with me at uh, Jonah chapter 3. I want to read to your hearing all ten verses, but we're only going to focus on the first five. And I want to speak to you upon obedience at last. Obedience at last. Jonah chapter number 3, beginning with verse 1. These are the words of God. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes." And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them be free, let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger? that we perish not. And God saw their works, 
And they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them and he did it not. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and how precious that it is. Father, we pray that in the time that we have remaining that you would take this, make it effectual, make it real to every heart and every life, Lord. God, we pray that you would bring all distractions to a close, bring, bring every uh, attention span into focus with you. May we be seated before your face that we hear from heaven this day. God, we pray that your word would go forth and do what you uh, purpose it to do. Convict those that need convicting. Edify those that need edifying. Draw us all to a closer walk with Christ. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our outline this morning has got four points as we consider the first five verses of this and Jonah's obedience at last. Jonah's change of heart. Point number one, verses one through two, we see the do-over. The do-over. Look what it says. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. This is the second time that Jonah heard the Lord in this book. Now, the Lord had not been silent in this book. He'd not been silent at all. The Lord may not have been verbal, but he certainly was not silent. He spoke to Jonah in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The Lord spoke to the weather and, chap and, and the sea in chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord spoke to the lot in uh, chapter 1, verse 7 to reveal Jonah's sin. The, he told the storm to dissipate and the sea to be still in chapter 1, verse 15. And the Lord spoke to the whale in chapter 1, verse 17, and then again in chapter 2, verse 10. And you recall we said last week, every bit of that obeyed the Lord, except for Jonah. Every bit of that in this book that God commands obeys God, except for Jonah. You may also recall that we said last week that all of creation under heaven from the time in the Garden of Eden until right now at this very moment, all of creation obeys the command of God without fail. Every tree grows in the direction that God purposes it to. A star does not fall from the sky until God tells it to. There are only two creatures that disobey the commands of God, demons and mankind. I hope that has rolled over and over and over in your mind throughout this last week, those that were here last, last Sunday. Because that does not put us in real good company. When, I, when, when you and I tell God no, in that moment, we are as the very demons that rebelled against Him and were kicked out of heaven. Now, I kind of have a, a pretty decent idea of how, you know, people like to think. Um, we're all alike in a lot of ways. And I, you know, I like to think when a, when a pastor is preaching that he's talking about everyone else in the room except for me. He's not talking to me, and I, I like to play past the buck. And I like to sit and listen to a message and try to find me a good old loophole that will let me off the hook so I can say, well, see, that right there doesn't apply to me. So some people might be thinking, you know, I've never told God no. Folks, let's get real. Let's get real. Let's get honest. You may have never audibly looked toward heaven and shook your fist and told God no, but your actions have said otherwise. I guarantee you your actions have said otherwise. I guarantee there have been times when you knew God wanted you to do something, just like our boy Jonah here, 
And you may not have told God no. You may not have verbalized the words no, I'm not going to do that. But nonetheless, you didn't do what he wanted you to do. Then on the flip side, there have been times where you were doing something that God forbids. And what did you try? What did you do? You just try not to retain God in your knowledge. Try not to think about God. Try to push the very thought of God as far away from you as you can and just keep right along doing what it is that he forbids us to do. When we do both, when we do both of those things in both of those instances, that's sin. That's disobedience to God. That's rebellion to his word. And God sees that rebellion as witchcraft. We've talked about it multiple times. And it puts us in the same category as those demons that told God he did not deserve to be on his throne and tried to get him off of it. That's how serious God sees disobedience. That's how serious disobedience to God's revealed will is. How much better would our walk be if we kept that in front of our minds? If we kept that mindful in in the way that we deal with people, in the way that we carry ourselves, how much closer of a walk would we have with Jesus Christ if we thought about that? So Jonah disobeyed the Lord. Jonah knew that he was guilty. Nobody had to tell Jonah he was guilty. He knew. And maybe just for a moment as he goes down into the belly of that ship and he goes to sleep and he's, you know, just for a moment, maybe he's blinded by his sin and maybe he would have thought, you know, Maybe God just won't pay any attention to me. Maybe God will just let me off the hook. Maybe he'll just find another prophet and send them to Nineveh. Sin can make you and I think and do some very dumb things. However, it did not take long for Jonah to feel the weight of that guilt. And listen to me when I say this. You may not ever hear the audible voice of God on this side of eternity, but know this. He is always at work around you. He's always at work around us doing something. Jonah realized this, and he knew the very God that he had disobeyed. He knew the power of God. He knew what God was capable of. He had seen God do that before, yet he allowed his fear and maybe even his hatred of the Ninevites to keep him from doing what God had commanded him to do. God could have killed Jonah right in his sin. And Jonah would have deserved it. But thank God. Praise God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. I want to say that again. I didn't get the reaction that that should have got. Thank God He does not give us what we deserve. If He gave us what we deserve, every one of us right now wouldn't be in this room. We'd be in hell. We would be in hell right now. But thank God We serve the God of the second chance. We serve the God of the second chances. And we live in a society today where everybody is entitled. Their most heartfelt cry is, I deserve this. I deserve that. I deserve what I want. I want it, therefore I deserve it. Let me say something that is very sobering this morning. If God gave you and I what we deserve, It would be hell right at this very moment. Thank God that he is merciful. He is loving. He is kind. He is long-suffering. That means he is patient. He is more patient than any of us combined together could possibly be. And he's slow to anger. And if you think about it, he's not the God of the second chances. He's the God of the fifth chance. 
He's the God of the 23rd chance, the 175th chance, even to the lost, even to those who are outside of Christ. Every day God allows you to live as another chance. It's another opportunity to receive His grace, another opportunity, another chance to receive the payment in full for your sin that was made by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. Do not scorn His offer of mercy because there's going to come a day when all those chances are going to be used up. And when I think about people in the Bible that got a second chance, I think about the Apostle Peter. Yes, Mr. Open Mouth and Insert Foot, right? Peter, who always spoke before he thought. When the Lord told the disciples in the, the, the night before he was to be crucified, he says, look, every one of you are going to leave me. One of you is going to betray me and every one of you are going to, going to leave me. Listen to these words in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Here's Peter. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if everyone else here leaves you, I will still be here. This is what Christ says in response to that. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before the cock crows, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny me thrice. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter, keep his word. No, no. What did he do? Did he keep that vow to the Lord? No. He did exactly what Christ told him that he would do. He let the fear of man, he let the fear of death overtake him, and Peter denied the Lord three times. And on that third denial, he cussed. And as soon as Peter got that last denial and that cuss word out of his mouth, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord. And the Scripture tells us that he wept bitterly. He had denied the Lord, and Peter was a broken man. But when the Lord was resurrected... When he walked out of that tomb, just like that he said he would three days later after he'd been crucified, and he meets those ladies on the, 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 the road to Emmaus, he, he, he tells the, those, those ladies to go forth and tell the disciples. Tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee, but he makes special mention of Peter. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus made special mention of Peter because Peter needed to be restored. Peter was in a bad way. And Jesus wanted Peter to know that he had been restored and had received a second chance. What did Peter do with that second chance? Fifty days later at Pentecost, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would preach one of the most powerful sermons of all time. And 3,000 people got saved. So in our text here in Jonah 3, Jonah gets a second chance. The whale vomits him out upon that shore and the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. In second verse, same as the first, the message was still the same. Go to Nineveh. Tell them the words that I'm getting ready, that I will give you. Go to the, go to Nineveh. Go to that wicked city and preach the message that I will give you. And with that second chance, Jonah's going to go preach eight words, eight words and and would lead, that would lead to the repentance of over a hundred thousand people. So Jonah got a second chance. But if you think about it, Nineveh got a second chance as well. 
Nineveh got a second chance as well. The most evil, wicked, and violent city in that day got a second chance. When I think of it, it, it would be like it would be like we would equate that today to the city of Chicago, Illinois. That's how wicked, evil, and violent Nineveh was. They got a second chance. They got a second chance from the patient, long-suffering, merciful, loving, and kind God of heaven and earth. If God was willing to give those wicked people, the most wicked people of that day, a second chance, what should we do? Then we should as well. You and I can be very quick to write someone off and say they're damaged goods, not want to have anything to do with them. God didn't do that with Nineveh. And thank God he doesn't do that with us. Point number two, verse three, look what it says. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We see delayed, the delayed obedience, the, the obedience that comes finally. Took long enough. Took a storm, took a hurricane and almost dying in it. Took three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. And finally, Jonah goes to Nineveh. But you kind of have to, you know, in judging from what, uh, how Jonah reacted in the first, the first part of the book in chapter one, and then how he's going to react to Nineveh's repentance in chapter four, Jonah's going to Nineveh finally, but he's probably dragging his feet. He's probably not real happy about going. Yeah, he's happy to be out of the belly of that whale. He's thankful to the Lord, but he's probably like, I was really hoping you was going to call somebody else to go by the time I got out of this thing. And so Jonah's dragging his feet and, 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 and thinking, you know, I was really hoping you'd have something else for me to do by the time I got out. What does this teach us? What is Jonah's d- delayed obedience? What is his final, finally coming around to obeying the Lord, even if it may be begrudgingly? What does this teach us? The children of God, the Lord's people are to obey God whether we want to or not. God's people are to obey him whether we want to or not, whether we feel like it or not. Jeremiah chapter 42, verse 6, we find this words. It says, whether it be good or evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord to whom we send thee that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord. He's saying whether it seems good or whether it seems bad to us, we're going to do what God tells us to do regardless. We're going to do what God tells us to do Either way, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Verse has been quoted a whole lot the last almost two years. Then Peter and the apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God than man. We ought rather to obey God than men. And the Lord Jesus tells his church that if you love him, he tells his disciples, if you love him, then do what? Keep his commandments. Our obedience displays our love for Christ. How do we do this? It's hard. We talked about this in Sunday school. How do we do this? It is hard to obey the Lord. We need to discipline ourselves to obey the Lord when it's... How do we do that? How do we discipline ourselves to obey the Lord when it's not easy and when we don't feel like it? We've got to cultivate within ourselves a heart of surrender towards Christ. Miss Linda loves to play that song, I Surrender All, very often. That's what we have to do. We surrendered our lives to Christ when he saved us, and we have to spend the rest of our Christian life surrendering it unto him, yielding our lives to him, letting what God wants trump what we want. 
We must cultivate in our, in our hearts a heart of obedience and surrender towards Christ. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. This is a verse that gets quoted a lot when death comes, unexpected death comes. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Folks, we need to realize that God has our best interest at heart in what he commands us to do. God always has the bigger picture in mind. In his grand eternal plan, our obedience to him will only be for our good. It may not be the healthy, wealthy, and wise that is falsely promoted on television, but obedience to God does yield protection. It does yield provision, and it does yield blessing all the way through our Christian lives until he calls us home. And obeying the Lord is not easy. It is not an easy thing to do to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow Christ in this fallen, sin-cursed, and dying world. The world, the flesh, and the devil assault us with temptation every day. The satanically influenced world system is constantly, multiple times a day, attacking us with temptation. And for young people, peer pressure is a very, very real thing. It is a strong thing. Being a young person and trying to follow Christ in this culture is, gotta, is, is the hardest thing that you could do. You're bombarded with sin, temptation to sin everywhere you turn. And let me tell you something, that temptation is only going to get stronger with the older you get and the more leeway your parents give you. The devil will hurl temptation at you. He'll sling it at you 100 miles an hour. And it will be difficult for you to resist the temptation and follow the Lord. You'll have friends that don't resist. You'll have friends that aren't Christians and that they will just fall right in. They will give themselves over to that temptation. Lose those friends. Lose those friends. And that temptation does not get any weaker. It does not get any less as you become an adult. It may, and it may seem easier just to go along with the culture. So we have to crucify that old sin nature. We've got to die to self every day. We've got to die to our own desires. We've got to die to our own actions. And when people try to pull us anything into things that are contrary to what the Lord commands, flee from it. When it's not safe, we need to obey the Lord. When it's not easy, we need to obey the Lord. We must always obey the word, the command of our God. Point number three, verse four. We see the directive. We see the directive. Verse 4 says, And Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The Lord gives Jonah the directive, the command, to go to Nineveh and preach this message. Preach the message that the Lord would give to him, and that's what he did. This life-altering message, the message that would change the course of an entire city of people was only eight words long. I wish it was that easy. I wish it was that easy. God did not tell Jonah to go to Nineveh and debate. God did not tell Jonah to go to Nineveh and run for political office. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach. Hear this well this morning. God's remedy for cultural change in this country and every country in the world 
is the preaching of the Word of God. It is the preaching of the Word of God that changes lives. I love Christian music, all types, bluegrass, bluegrass gospel, regular gospel, southern gospel, contemporary. I love all types of Christian music where Christ is at the center. It stirs my soul. It's edifying. It blesses me. But I did not get saved by listening to a song. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It was the preaching of the word of God that revealed to me how I stacked up against God's holy law. And it was the preaching of the word of God that showed I didn't come close. It was the preaching of the word of God that showed me that I deserved hell and that's where I was headed. And it was the preaching of the word of God that showed me that while I was yet a sinner, Jesus Christ died for me. It is the preaching of the word that changes lives. So many churches in our day have gotten away from that. They've gotten away from preaching being the focal point of their ministries. It's a tremendous, expensive, elaborate music production and other things. And about a 15, 20 minute sermonette. Preaching the word of God is to be the focal point of each and every ministry because God has ordained the method and the means for how he will build his church. The means is Christ and his sinless life, his sacrificial death upon the cross and his glorious resurrection. The method is preaching about it. The method is preaching about it. And I'm reminded about what um, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To the outside world, they'll never understand why you and I come into this building Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and we keep hearing that same old message. Maybe a little bit different topic, maybe a little different subject, but the heart, the meat of the matter is still the same. It's Jesus Christ. And the world can't understand that. It's foolishness to them. The preaching of the cross to them is foolishness that perish. But to us, unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God to them that believe. Some people don't know how to verbalize the gospel message. You ask someone who professes to be a Christian, you ask 25 Christians, you'll get 25 different answers. What's the gospel? They'll say, uh, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. John 3.16, wonderful verse, but that's not the gospel. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's not the gospel. I want to give you three verses, and you might want to write them down, hide them in your heart, memorize them. Three verses that perfectly describe what the gospel message is. First is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. It's the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to do what? Save sinners. And if you want to, you can put that little cherry on top, among whom I am foremost, among whom I am chief. It is the preaching of the gospel. And when you and I who are saved, when we hear that, it is a soothing balm to our soul. 
When I hear about Christ dying for sinners, I'm one of those sinners. I've told you many times it's to make this faith personable. Make the Christian life personable to you. That's how you have victory in this life. To see that he is the savior, king, prophet, and priest that came, lived sinless and perfectly, died vicariously, rose again the third day for you. Yes, for the church. Yes, for the church. Yes, for every for, for people that, that are made up of every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. Right? When, when we get to the resurrection, when we get to eternity, there will be so many brothers and sisters uh, uh, in, in, the, in eternity. Be, we'll have so many brothers and sisters in Christ that there won't be any more seed. Right? We all that land to have to hold us all. But I'm one of those. I'm one of those people. Christ died for me. He died to set me free. That's how we had that victory. So that brings about the, the question back in Jonah chapter 3. How did such a small message of only eight words yield such tremendous results? Here's the answer. Because God was in it. Because God was in it. It was God's message. It was God's plan. Those were God's words. No doubt God had been preparing the soul and the hearts of those people. You recall what I, what I, what I uh, talked about last week or a couple of weeks ago when, when Jonah was in that fish that uh, God used the, the paganism of the Ninevites against them. He used the, pagan, the, the paganism of the Ninevites to even bring about their, uh, their repentance. The Ninevites were a very, very, very paganistic people, right? They had myriads of gods and false gods, but their main one was one by the name of Dagon. Dagon was a fish god. And so here at the same time that Jonah repents and gets right with God, God commands that big fish to turn Jonah loose, and that fish vomited Jonah out onto the shore. Was that a coincidence? No. There are no coincidences in the timeline of God. God has everything planned and lined up perfectly. And I believe that there were some Ninevites nearby that saw that happen. Whoa, that God that we worship has done vomited out somebody. And then he starts telling about the real God. They go back to Nineveh and start telling the, the, the other people, hey, the God that we serve vomited out a prophet with a message from the real God that made that fish. So we need to listen to him. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 17. We've been studying Acts on Wednesday nights. Paul uh, says in earlier chapters of Acts, he says, I became all things to all men that by all means I might win some. Meaning that Paul would try to find things that he could identify to the people that he was evangelizing. Try to find an open door to be able to uh, find something to be able to use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. He did that when he went to Athens, Greece. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was in Athens, Greece. He was shocked at their idolatry. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, they had a God from everything, for everything from wine to war. They had a God for everything from wine to war, and then Zeus was the king of all the false gods. And there Paul was in the Parthenon, which was their capital building, and Paul found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And that was Paul's doorway that he used as an opportunity to preach the gospel. He said, let me tell you about this unknown God that you worship in ignorance. He's the real deal. He's the only true and living God, and you need to repent and trust him. And for three days, Jonah walked through the city of Nineveh, preaching that eight-word message that God gave him. How did such a 
small, had just a sentence, have such a huge impact. Again, because they were God's words. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is quick. That means it's alive. It is living and it is powerful and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow. And as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, it was God's words that were proclaimed to those people. What did it do? Verse uh, 5, point number, point number 5, it forced a decision. Verse 5, we see the decision. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed the fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. The people of Nineveh heard the message, but they didn't just hear the message like most Christians hear a Sunday morning message from their pastor and then leave and by the time they get to their driveway before they get pulled in, good, they've done forgotten all about it, never to be thought about again. No, this message, because it was the very words of God, because God was in this, this caused Nineveh to act. They believed the message. They heard the message and they believed the message. They did not question the message. They did not scoff at the message. They did not make fun of the messenger. They did not say, well, you know, I'll wait till day 39 and then I'll get things right with God. Then, then, then I'll believe. No, they believed the message as soon as they heard it. Then they called a fast. They denied themselves food and water and replaced that with focus upon God. And then they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth and ashes were symbol of repentance. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, more last uh, next week because everything from the king to the animals, they put everything in sackcloth and ashes. Everything. Uh, uh, look, look again what it says. From the greatest of them even to the least of them, everyone repented. Rich, poor, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, all repented that day. All of them repented and were uh, uh, in sackcloth and ashes. The Ninevites didn't need 40 days. They didn't need a week. They didn't need another day. As Jonah made his way through that city, as each person heard the message of God, they believed. They believed and they acted. And they acted in a, in a manner of repentance and they moved toward God and they moved in desperation. Folks, God is calling every one of us in this church, in this state, in this country, and around the world to faith in Him, repentance of our sins, and desperation for Him. Think about this. When do alcoholics and drug, and drug addicts finally turn the corner and get clean? When they get desperate. When do people get serious about their marriage and their, and, and, and their marriage takes a, a turn for the better? When they get desperate. When do churches turn a corner and, and, and things begin to happen and God begins to move when the people get desperate? So we have to be honest here. Folks, we live in a time, a day, and an hour where people are not desperate for God. You notice I have not said anything about what Tuesday is. Yes, go do your civic duty. Yes, go do your civic duty. I'm not trying to deter you from it, but I'm going to tell you what, I ain't putting no stock in it. Why? Because we're looking at everything manward and we're not looking Godward. And we're continuing to do the same things, putting trust in conservatism, putting trust in earthly leaders. We need, we need to be repenting and looking to God. But we continue to do the same things. And, and as long as you do the same things, you get the same results. Nothing will ever change. Change. The Ninevites were desperate. 
They were desperate. They heard the message of, of the coming judgment of God and they got desperate for the mercy of God. And that desperation caused them to move and move in ways toward God. For the people that are outside of Christ, if you are still in your sin, you need to get desperate for His mercy and move in desperation in repentance to God. You need to be desperate about it because this may be your final opportunity to do so. And for those of us who are in Christ, we need to get desperate for, for God. You and I need to get desperate for the things of God. We need to get desperate to flee from the temptations that plague us and desperate for the blood of Christ. Flee to Christ. We have to get desperate to crucify that old sinful nature. We've got to get desperate to die to self. We need to get desperate to do the things that he has commanded us to do. I want to close this message this morning by asking you this, Christian, if you were called home today, have you done all that God has commanded you to do? Have you done all that God has wanted you to do? If you were to stand before him this day, Christian, heaven and hell's already been determined by what he what Jesus did on the cross. You're going to stand and what's going to do, and what uh, God is going to judge then is how you're going to serve him in eternity. Oh, I told you this many times. All that will matter at the end of this life is what we did with Jesus Christ. Lost or saved. If you were if you're lost, did, did you have the opportunity to receive him? If you did, why didn't you receive him? For those who were saved, did you do everything that you possibly could to bring him honor and glory? Did you do everything that you could to make him known to as many as you possibly could? Did you try to impact as many lives as you could for him? Have you done all that he has wanted you to do? Why not? Time is running out and therefore you and I have to get desperate for him and we need to get desperate to obey him let's pray heavenly father we thank you lord for your word as i have so unworthily tried to unfold it god help us to get desperate for you help us to get desperate for your word help us to get desperate to be obedient to your word Help us to get desperate to tell others about you. Help us to get desperate to want to hear the words when we stand before you. Well done. Help us, Lord, to be desperate for the things of Christ, to forsake the things of this world and be desperate for the things of you. God, now that as we prepare our hearts to go before you to partake of your precious table, we pray that everything is right in our own lives, that if we have any unconfessed sin, we'll get it right, and we'll do so right now. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray.